So you have a voting bloc. 74% of them don't engage in political conversation because it's too uncomfortable, because it doesn't keep the peace. And part of the requirements of that blueprint is to be the world's cheerleader, to make sure everything is harmonized enough. And when I say harmonized, I mean just glossed over. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic, when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizenwell. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. I'm Carrie Kelly. The 2020 election is fast approaching, and the stakes are really high. While voting, of course, isn't the only tool of participation and intervention, it is an essential part of our democracy. In the wake of the 2016 election, our guest, Jenna Arnold, hosted listening circles around the country to understand why 53% of white women voted for Trump. She wrote a book that captured those learnings, called Raising Our Hands, how white women can stop avoiding hard conversations, start accepting responsibility, and find our place on the new front lines. This podcast is particularly for white women who are reckoning with their complicity in how to show up in this critical political moment to make things right. In our conversation, Jenna shares about what she discovered about the insecurities and cultural norms that are holding us back from real allyship. She points to our addiction to performance chores, perfection, and privilege that protects our positionality and gets in the way of showing up for the well-being of everyone. Throughout the conversation, she had me going, how is that me? How do I do that? How can I do better? And that is exactly what she intended with this book, to ask white women to take a hard look at themselves and dismantle the systems that are within us and all around us. This conversation is a welcome invitation to do our work and take our place without taking up too much space in the movement. Check it out. Jenna Arnold, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
So in 2016, I know you know this because we've talked about it a bunch, but in 2016, 53% of white women voted for Trump. Is that why you wrote this book? It was one of the many reasons why I wrote this book. I was one of the organizers of the Women's March. And when I stood out on stage and looked out at Independence and Third in D.C., I saw a lot of people wearing pink hats. And it struck me that just from a qualitative perspective, a lot of them looked white. Um, and then I was trying to wrestle with the 51 to 54% figure that was suggesting that American white women voted for Trump. And then trying to reconcile that with the relationships with the women that I've had in my life. My mom is one of nine and I'm very close with my aunts and many of them have, I've spent a lot of time with them and many of them have very much shaped my morals and perspectives and commitment and ambition to do better. And yet I witnessed so many of them pull the lever in ways that I just didn't think aligned with their values or what it was that they had taught me. And so I was sitting with three pieces of information, the amount of people who were showing up on the streets, January 21st, 2017, very much propelled by this internal discomfort or this internal collective human heartbeat saying, I have to come, I have to show up, I have to see and be seen. Then with exit polls, which as a huge flag, I will not believe a political poll, surely not an exit poll again in general, because they're just people standing on the steps of the high school with clipboards and pieces of paper saying, totally. For. But even if we extend a 10% margin, it would be on either side, which academics never do, but pretend it was 44% of American white women or 64% of American white men, it's still inexcusable. And because I was looking at all these facts and they just didn't seem to add up, I had this moment of, oh, wait, this is what all of the activists and scholars from many centuries ago to decades ago to today were saying um, and encouraging white folk who um, are in proximity or who have spent a lot of time understanding um, social justice theory and their request for them to take those theories into communities that might not be as familiar with those requests. And, and I said, okay, great. I'm, I'm in. Where's the book? Where's the organization? What's the listserv I have to sign up for? And I was sort of like a meerkat looking all around and I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any group of people or individual that was saying, okay, maybe we can go sit down with Karens and do this strategy or go have these kinds of conversations with each other or hear the excuses we're making for the men in our lives. Or I was really very curious about my relationship with power and proximity being raised as a white woman in the suburbs of Philadelphia and how that was part of the overall problem. Mm. So you, um, you then chose to travel around the country holding what you call listening circles to try and understand what, um, what the fuck <laughs> was going on in the minds of white women who voted for Trump. What did you hear and discover? So I organized a series of listening circles across the country and I sliced and diced the white female demographic into very 
stereotypical segments. I'm not an academic, I'm not a journalist, but I played one. And so I organized conversations with super wealthy Jewish women who were over the age of 60 in the suburbs of Baltimore. Um, I, I organized listening circles with young evangelical moms in Connecticut. So I really took the political, religious, socioeconomic categories and tried to break it into making sure I was having very homogenous conversations because I found that in diverse, in, in conversations with white women who re represented diverse political, religious, socioeconomic perspectives that it ended up turning into a lot of performance. Um, and, mm. and there wasn't as much freedom to a little bit group think, but also be able to speak what it was that they were wrestling with. Mm -hmm. And I recognized there was a series of universal patterns and there were one or two very surprising things that, that I concluded, which just confirmed the hypothesis as so many other scholars that have come before. Um, but some of the universal truths were these concepts of um, pretending perfection, um, performance chores, I call them, cognitive acrobatics, which is a term coined by Dr. Fielding Singh at, uh, at Stanford, this idea that even if you um, are rebelling against certain components of society, be it gender, or whether or not you have children, or whether or not you get married, or breaking from the religion that you might have been raised from, that there is this broad blueprint, this very specific sequence that our society encourages women to walk. So the blueprint encourages us to be sporty and cute in grade school, have enough friends um, in middle and high school that you can sit at whatever table you want in the cafeteria, that you go off to undergrad, assuming you can get in, assuming you can afford it, and you're pretty consistently asked whether or not you're dating someone before you're asked what it is that you're studying or how it is that you'd like to contribute to the world. And then as soon as you graduate undergrad, you're welcome to go have an adventure in one of the major cities, but you really have to have your eyes on who that significant other is that you might end up, you know, partnering up with and then completing the rest of the blueprint, which is getting engaged. And then of course, if you land that ring on your finger, you spend the next six months or 16 months talking about the wedding. Is it strapless dress, DJ or band? And then before you unwrap that last present, you're then pelted with questions about whether or not you're going to have kids. And then assuming you decide to, assuming you can get, you can conceive and carry it um, to term, Three months before you have your first kid, you're asked what I find to be an extraordinarily, overwhelmingly privileged and advantaged question, which is, are you going to continue to work or stay at home? And while I'm oh. not interested in debating the mommy wars, we'll keep that in the 90s where they belong, but this idea that there's this series of boxes that you have to check off that's going to somehow suggest yes. like you followed all of the rules enough not to be a flag to your teachers or your family or your larger community. And then therefore you are then launched. So you have this whole host of women who then spend the next 30 years holding a bucket of guilt because they're either wrestling their inbox and wrestling, raising a family or wrestling, raising a family and then questioning how it is that they can participate in the world. And all it is, is just these levels of guilt. And I would argue shame. And with that shame, we spend a lot of time convincing ourselves why the path that we've chosen, be it 
um, and not just related to staying at home and working, but as it relates to the relationships we have with the men in our lives. Um, um, the cognitive acrobatics that we perform, like I'll just buy all the Christmas presents. I'll put the kids to sleep. I'll load the dishwasher. It's just easier if I do it. It ultimately ends up resulting in women laboring four to 10 times harder than men, even though our men are changing diapers at higher rates than they used to, even though our mm-hmm. men are more than they used to, or are more involved in our kids' lives. But this idea of like pretending perfection that like I checked all of the boxes and it was always my favorite when listening circle participants would say things like, Oh, there isn't anything perfect. I don't, I'm not a perfectionist. There's nothing that has to be perfect in my life. I don't really care about the way my body looks or my fashion or my Instagram followers or my Thanksgiving recipes. And always after like an hour or two, I can figure out what their perfection, what their perfect deliverable is to the world. And there's one (laughs) that's great. Um, She's like, that doesn't apply to me. But then she spent the whole time talking about her son. And her son was like quarterback of the football team. And I saw a photo and is very handsome and, you know, seemed particularly popular. And I was like, what do you mean you don't have a perfect deliverable? It's your son. And so this idea that like Mm. you have to deliver something perfect. um, And then we sort of do backflips and cartwheels our way all the way through that deliverable, but also in our relationships also in how we're participating civically. Um, and, and so we're, we're mm. excellent gymnasts. Um, and I think sometimes that prevents us from being authentic and vulnerable mm. and humble and when we need to be asking harder questions of ourselves. I want to kind of make sure I understand this because this is fascinating. And I just want to like name that like for 25 years of my life, I was checking off all the boxes. Me too. Right? I- like, and I really was curating the most perfect mm-hmm white dominant culture, mm-hmm. capitalist, mm-hmm. individualistic life. Like I remember that clearly. And, and I was like, nothing is going to get in the way of me getting all the way to the beach house That's with, right. the, That's with the suburban right. and all the things. And so I want to make sure I understand this because I was um, devoted to that path mm-hmm. until, until 9-11 and 9-11 was really my big wake up call. Mm-hmm. And so are you saying that cognitive ap- a- acrobatics is the way that we when we experience dissonance, right? The way that we like contort ourselves to justify Mm -hmm. maintaining our status or staying on the path, even though there might be evidence that it's harmful or it's wrong or it's inauthentic um, or it's, you know, contributing to a more unequal society. Is that what you mean by kind of the cognitive acrobatics is that we're like doing backflips Yes, but oftentimes those gymnastics routines sit at a little bit more, sometimes in a more superficial level and oftentimes in our relationships with people. And what I think is happening right now is many people are realizing that our behavior based on the sequence of steps that we have to follow is very much one of the foundations, if not the foundation that's causing so much harm. So some of the more superficial, and again, I don't, I'm not suggesting it's this example that I'm going to offer superficial because it really ultimately dictates the direction of a human being's life. But sometimes people will make decisions around their choice and partner because yes, they love them and yes, they have great sex, but they're on track to make partner at the law firm. Yeah. Or 
yes, we don't have great sex, but we have the best time together, but he's not that ambitious. So there are these like series of things that we trade to convince ourselves that our partners are the right are the right people or that a job is the right is the right position. I'll never forget. I was giving a speech at Georgetown University maybe like 3 5 years ago and it was to an audience full of young women. I think they were like junior seniors, so like 20, you know, 20, 21, 22. And I asked them to raise their hand and I said, "Who is already thinking about maternity leave?" and how they're going to juggle becoming a mom. It's like 80% of the room went up. Is it how many of you are going to make a professional decision based on the fact that you don't know how you're going to want to make that decision now? Like 100% of the room went up. And so the fact that like juniors in undergrad are making decisions and doing cognitive acrobatics to try to predict what and how they're going to approach bearing children and then raising them is part of the um is part of the strategy for i believe white women to sort of be ignorant and blind to all of the complications and the consequences of our conveniences so we can we can convince ourselves that we're taking the job because in 10 years from now the maternity leave is great or um, I'll be able to come back. You know, there were a lot of lawyers in some of the listening circles that I were doing, I was doing. And one of them was talking about how she had some, she suffered from a pretty serious postpartum depression, but she forced herself to go back to the office because she wanted to make partner. And she had to like justify why that was the healthiest choice for her. So this idea that like we just justify our way into being complacent, we justify our way into following the rules and it it puts up these sort of like blinders. It keeps us busy enough that we don't see the consequence to those decisions. Well, and the reason I was asking about this, because I was really, while you were talking, having like a real aha moment was that it, it reminds me of how we went out of our way to justify slavery, right? Like we went out of our way to construct a system that um, could be used to exploit labor, right? That's like the history of America, right? Is that, and, and that, and that seems, seems like a similar cognitive acrobatic that we had to like dissociate ourselves like so fully from being human and from witnessing harm so as to justify the thing that was related to status, the thing that was related to power, right? The thing that was related to property and making money. And this feels related to that. Well, it's why we're so good at it, Carrie, because if you look at the storybook of our country and I often, and this is a bit of an epiphany for me over the past couple of months as I've been workshopping and speaking to so many people who are coming into this conversation and the work that I've done over the past couple of years with these different questions is I keep trying to struggle with this concept of how do I help people understand that America isn't like some beautiful poem that was inked at the at Independence Hall, whatever date it might have been by some divine creatures. Like 
America was a business proposition. We have a mission statement that has zero pronouns that reference she or her. The Constitution, all of our founding documents are doing exactly what they were meant to. Our textbooks tell us stories that suggest that America was created on all these values and morals, not to say that there aren't attempts, attempts and that there isn't language in there to suggest that, but that America is pure in its intention. So this idea of like, we have constructed what I compare to, you know, perfectly filtered Instagram feeds. You know the women in your lives who um, are on your feeds that only post beautiful shots and are highly well filtered and you know they're probably using the skinny app. It's the same thing in our textbooks. So when mm. so when our the story of us, the story of this country, it's the the, the chapter on this piece of land, which is only four hundred this specific chapter is only four or five hundred years old. And I would it's it's so important to remind the listeners and everybody that there was people who lived here thirteen thousand years before. That's right. Our ancestors' bows of their boats pushed up our shores. This was only the new world for white men. That's right. That's exactly right. It was the it was the white man's chapter, essentially, is what was started four hundred years ago. And so this idea that like, well, our whole past the stories we tell, the, the stories that are victors, right? Victors get to tell their stories. The stories that the victors have told about this country is like, well, sometimes we messed up, but we fixed it, right? Mm-hmm. We elected a black president. Like we fixed slavery. Right. I mean, the amount And then we fixed Jim Crow, right? We even fixed a fucking thing. Right, exactly. Right. No. We've, just, we've just mutated, quite right. frankly. Exactly. Like white supremacy has only morphed and mutated to get what it wants. That's exactly right. And so this idea of like, we are products of that. So we're like, okay, how are we going to make sure we're presenting and structuring our lives according to the algorithm? And the algorithm means a relatively well-kept lawn, children that behave, Thanksgiving tables that look bustling, a family portrait with, oh, casually mixed-matched denim, white on beach, everyone looking particularly happy and lovely and easy and isn't all right with the world. Mm-hmm. It is so, it is inauthentic. It doesn't suggest opportunities to grow and to learn. And most mm-hmm. importantly, it is so disconnected with the mm-hmm. reality of so many humans on this planet. Well, and it's disconnected from interdependence. One of the things that, that I just discovered when I was, you know, writing a chapter for my book was that, you know, America came to be during the Enlightenment, right? So America, actually, America and the idea of slavery um, came up adjacent to the idea of selfhood, right, that emerged out of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. John Powell has this great saying that the two parents of America are slavery, right, and the Enlightenment because they really shaped our idea of, of liberty and freedom. And I say that because we're seeing that idea play out in real time, how self-interested our idea of liberty and freedom is when people go into Target and refuse to wear a mask, right? They refuse to, to, to participate, right, in this culture of collective care that can, that can maybe get us all well from this pandemic. And instead, they're like doubling down 
on their self-interested commitment to shopping without a mask or to, to, to getting their toenails painted or to like all the things, right, that people are prioritized. And I just think that feels related to the, the cognitive ac- acrobatics that yeah. you're naming yeah. is that like we're doing these really fucked up and actually like totally irrational mm-hmm. things, right? We're telling really irrational stories just so that we can maintain our status, just so that we can maintain our sense of, of um, self-interest and of choice um, amidst a moment that's really calling us to be more interdependent and, and connected and collective. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you're a mom, I'm not a mom, so I feel like I want to ask you this particular question that feels related to this. And you just talked about the blueprint and the checklist that, that women are, are constantly working with as they sort of design their life. Um, according to this white algorithm, this white American algorithm. But one of the things that we know about white supremacy is that it does feed off of individualism and scarcity. And Robin D'Angelo in her book often um, references the line in the sand for white women around whether they would give up their kids' good schools for, for the benefit or for the well-being of everyone. And we know that good schools is code for white schools, Right. Um, versus more equitable schools, right? And and that sort of, it's almost like um, I will be woke enough until you ask me to give things up related to my kids. And that's one of the questions you were asking in, in your listening circles. It's what are you willing to fight for besides your kids? And I imagine folks really um, were conflicted with that choice. How did that land for people? They were conflicted because they'll often hide behind that as the reason why they need to protect some unjust policy, right? And what what they're protecting is their their wealth. And I think ultimately the the tipping point that's going to be really where the rubber meets the road is at what conveniences are those who are privileged from a resource perspective, gender, um, disability status, race, what are they ultimately going to be willing to give up for the betterment of all? And oftentimes people say, well, you know, it's my kid's education, my kid's education, my kid's opportunities. And what's happened because we have this scarcity mentality and I feel like your your listeners are um, – much more ahead of some of um, other folks in the country who are just starting to grapple with the concept of white supremacy and things like that. But the scarcity mentality means that there's only a limited amount of opportunity for everybody. Um, And so what you have is people who start hoarding opportunities just for their kids. And what it means I saw manifested was um, things like, I can be anti-rape. I can um, always say believe survivors until it's my son who gets accused of sexual misconduct. And then I'll start asking questions like, how short was her skirt? 
um, did she really say no? Or when it comes to, I'm all for social justice, but I got to call my friend to get the hookup so that my kid can get that internship. And so this idea of like, yes, everyone can be like, I'm trying and I care about justice and I want all human beings to thrive. But when you start passing down access to opportunities to climb the financial and power structure ladders, um, people can get very, very protective over it. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is that when people look at schools, elementary schools, you know, elementary, middle, high schools, that's the first spot for parents to protect the um, trajectory of their children. And you see it a little bit, Carrie. It's really fascinating. You're also seeing it now in youth sports. So what's happening is that communities are now uh, – or. Um, Use, the youth sports industry has like quadrupled over the past handful of years so that instead of a six-year-old playing soccer, basketball, doing a little bit of ballet, maybe swimming over the summer, you see these sports camps surfacing that are recruiting your six-year-old to just play soccer for that entire year so that he or she can be the best when they're seven, eight, nine, ten, and then there's this promise that there's this destination that oh, they could possibly get a you know a scholarship. Scholarship. Cool. It, and then what happens is these kids get burnt out by tenth grade, and they're like, I don't want to play soccer anymore because it's the only thing I've ever done. And these kids, you see, they have injuries that are comparable to professional athletes because it's the only thing that they've ever done. So there becomes this like, how can I hoard and protect? opportunities for my kids so that they can have more than me when I think the outstanding question is is like do they want more than you well and it feels related to scarcity mentality right like there's this meme um going around on social media that says equal rights isn't pie right like as if like god forbid we all commit to like equitable schools so that every kid can have a good education um that somehow that's gonna like um harm your own child like this idea that there's no abundance to go around for all kids to get educated and to be supported and enriched in really powerful ways and and investing in that mentality feels so harmful and it also feels like deeply in collusion right with white supremacy and we see this um you know, even in the way that, that, you know, politics is being wielded, right? It's like if we create, and, and this is capitalism at work, is if we create a sense of scarcity, then people will do what we need them to do. That's right. Right. Um, that not only will they hoard, but they'll buy more, right? And they'll feel never satisfied. Nothing is ever enough. No school is ever good enough. No amount of money is ever good enough. And even in the wellness world, I think about like no, you know, yoga class, you know, or organic food or or facial um, or immuno booster is ever good enough, right? To satisfy people as being, um, you know, adequate. Um, and that feels as toxic that belief that's so in, not just ingrained in our brains but to yeah. your point like really embedded in our history yeah as everything else i want to ask about performance allyship because you have a whole chapter on this called performance chores perfection and privilege um that really gets at this perfectly no pun intended of course mm-hmm. um but it's related to i think what you were naming about convenience that that our allyship, not only is it performative, but it only goes so far as it won't 
deeply inconvenience or compromise our position. Like that's sort of how I see it happening, especially right now in the wake of George Floyd, where it's no longer acceptable to be silent. And so people are, are feeling pressure to be out there and to be more vocal. Um, but there are real um, guardrails, if you will, <laughs> around how far people are willing to go, how um, how much risk people are willing to take. What did you learn about sort of the way in which folks are performing allyship and what's getting in the way? There is clearly a curiosity and a new level of commitment to ask and do in ways today that there weren't six months ago. Um, and surely there weren't four years ago. Um, but, but one of the things that I see constantly happen is this hesitancy to step in and engage out of fear of doing it wrong. Going back to the performance requirements, we have an education system that is relatively binary. I mean, the entire country is binary. It's either Republican, Democrat, um, you're on the winning team, you're on the losing team, you're either the boss and allowed to dominate, or you're the employee being dominated. There isn't a lot of gray. We don't make room for a lot of the grace of gray, I like to call it. And so consequently, mm. when there's opportunities to step into complicated conversations, I always use this example because I witnessed it at a country club, if you might be a gun-loving owner, but shrieking inside about what's happening on the south side of Chicago or what's happening in our first-grade classrooms, and there's an opportunity to talk about guns and gun control at that country club, unless you can perfectly step into that conversation, perfectly articulate the nuances of background checks or gun show loopholes or whatever else it is that people might suddenly be up in arms about, or the NRA script, of course, perfectly convince the person that you're talking to and then perfectly exit the conversation, you're not going to do it. Unless you're going to get that A, unless you're going to be perfectly right, it's very frightening for people who are used to performing for each other to actually do. So consequently, 74% of American white women don't talk about politics. And the, the largest voting block in the country is white women. So you have a voting block. 74% of them don't engage in political conversation because it's too uncomfortable, because it doesn't keep the peace. And part of the requirements of that blueprint is to be the world's cheerleader, to make sure everything is harmonized enough. And when I say harmonized, I mean just glossed over. When you have people who are like, I'm not going to have that conversation with Uncle Bob. I don't, I don't love Hillary either. But obviously, I'm going to vote for her. But I'm just going to wait for this election to pass because obviously the polls suggest she's going to win. So this idea of like, we don't even pick our heads up to do the hard work of asking the hard questions because it makes us all too uncomfortable. So then you enter a moment like now where suddenly everybody is watching. And now I haven't watched the George Floyd murder because I watched the Eric Garner murder years ago and I never have to watch another one again. That's and right, Sam. Most people who have been living that reality also didn't watch it because it's been a rerun, a fucking rerun for hundreds and thousands of years. And so suddenly you have this American demographic who's like, wait, what? What? And they're up in arms and plenty of debate around why they're suddenly looking now. Is it because everyone's quarantined at home? Is it because there's, right. there's a handful of influencers that pushed it? Like, why now? 
okay, oh my gosh, post the black square, hashtag Blackout Tuesday, or people posting photos of themselves in black and white, you know, in-, with, in Yeah, photos with their black friends. Right, exactly. Um, Whatever it might be. And what what's happening is that for the people who are just starting to engage, for the people who are starting to say things like, wait, am I a white supremacist? Is my company a white supremacist? Mm-hmm. There's this desperation to be like, wait, me too. This is fucked up. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I need to roar. And sometimes that roaring is happening on Instagram feeds and using hashtags that mess up the algorithm. And one of the things that I don't have a problem with people posting black squares, and I don't have a problem with them posting hashtag blackout Tuesday, but by noon that day, when it was clear that that hashtag was messing up the algorithm for really important people, all that people needed to do was take it down. Right. Like this idea of like, well, you're allowed to not be perfect in this experiment and in this conversation that you are very late for. And what you can't do is mess up, get your hand slapped and then go sit back in the corner and cognitive acrobatic your way right back into the net, that next Netflix series. You're not Mm -hmm. allowed to do that. Well, and it's funny, you know, Austin Channing Brown, who wrote an amazing book, um, called I'm Still Here, has a chapter in there um, where she talks about how this thing that you're naming, um, she describes as white women choosing to protect their egos yep. more than black women's bodies, right? That like our egos are so fragile. We're so fear fearful of being humiliated. We're so scared to say the wrong thing. We're so invested in being good, you know, the good girl, the good mm-hmm. Christian. I mean, I think it has like lots of, you know, cultural roots our desperate um, desire to be good in the eyes of God or to be good in the eyes of the school or to be good in the eyes of culture, that we're willing to actually trade in people's well-being. Right. To preserve our ego and to preserve, right, and to not look bad. And that is a really fucked up, scary thing. Like, I really had to pause when I read that and be like, where do I do that in my life? Right? Where do I do that? I heard this a lot in the listening circles. People would preface, like, the listening circles meant that I was sitting on the floors of a lot of four-bedroom center hall colonials, you know, on cul-de-sacs throughout the country, eating a lot of brie cheese and a lot of boxed wine, which I was very content with. Um, and, And when we really got into it, like, two hours into it, depending on the demographic, depending on, like, the very specific... Um, kind of woman that was in the room, the variables that I was talking about earlier in the conversation, because with progressives, like we would never really get into it because they were performing their wokeness for each other, but really to convince themselves that they're not wrong um, and they're not bad um, and they're not racist and they're not xenophobic and they're not misogynist and all of those things that we all are. Oftentimes when we would start to dive deep, women would preface a question that they've likely held in for years or decades about a perspective or an assumption that they had about a concept or a person or an ideology or a race. And they'd say, listen, I really am a good Christian, but, or he really does mean well, but. And so this idea of like constantly justifying our goodness and Good is part of the binary because there's only an opposite, which is bad. And I would like to invite all of those who are human listening to this podcast to really consider at what point have they been good. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the things that we've been holding as as an inquiry is 
the ways that our desire to be good, our motivation to be good, right? And good, you know, couching good, obviously, in dominant culture and in the ways in which it's been indoctrinated as white, good as white, right? Good as perfect, um, good as Christian. Mm -hmm. um, that it's really about, um, in addition to being about like being authentic, it's about harm reduction. Like what are the ways in which our desire to be good has actually caused a great deal of harm? Mm -hmm. Um, has hurt people, right? Has um, has sacrificed people, um, has uh, disposed of people, right? Because it's not good enough. So I, we, we're holding that question too. That like, if all of this, right, is about harm reduction, um, is about how do we show up um, to um, uh, to reduce violence, right? To um, to do less harm. Um, what is what is the place that good has in that? And 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 what does it look like to abandon good? for simply less harm. Um, and, and that's sort of like one of the questions I think we're holding. And I think that's one of the questions that white women need to be holding because when I think about like, where do we go from perfect, right? We don't, I don't think we wanna go to good enough. I used to think that. I think we wanna go to just do less harm. I would probably push a little bit harder on that because I think between now and I'll say February, 2021, and there's, a series of very key things that need to happen between now and then. One, there's November 3rd, and we all know what's happening that day. Then there's the next two and a half months of protecting a country should Biden end up winning, because my hunch is that if Trump loses, and the only way he will probably concede is if it's a huge landslide. Right. I hear people being like, oh, well, Florida only, you know, in, in the um, Bush Gore election, Florida only went Bush by 530 points. I'm like, yo, if we have a, a county in the country that has a difference of 530 points, that that man's not leaving the office. So there has to be a landslide of a victory in November. Then there has to be a peaceful transition of power. Right. The most important political exercise in this democracy and then we have to wait a month or two to make sure that no one else is coming out of the woodwork. Then I think that we can go to doing less harm. Between now and that point, Carrie, I believe we are in a state of trying to protect our species. Well, and I'm really glad you brought up the election because I feel like this is a good place to, to land. Um, because at the end of the day, this white women work is not the end all be all. It's not even the point to, you know, this is really about um, making a correction, right? Um, in the context of something much bigger, right? Because it's not about, it's not so much about white women voting as much as it's about the feminist vote. It's about how do white women show up more skillfully, more engaged, more courageous, more authentic, to use your word, in in coalition across lines of difference, right? Because the only way we win, and I, and by win, I mean just like, let's just get past the, this coming election, right? The only way to come up against systems of white supremacy, systems of capitalism, systems of individualism, systems of patriarchy, is to actually amass power, amass collective power. And no one identity can do that. We actually have to learn how to be a coalition politics. Um, and so, and so I just like, I wonder like, what does it look like for, 
for, and I just, I think that context is really important because I think white folks often center white folks, right? And this isn't about centering white folks as, it's, as, it, as much as it is about white folks doing the work that they need to do to catch up, A, and to show up more skillfully, B, for the mass movement that we need to build so that we can actually advance equity, so that we can actually advance a feminist future. And so what would you say to white women who are listening around how they need to show up over the next couple months in coalition with, right, people of color, in, um, um, in collaboration across lines of difference, so that as we move towards um, taking back the White House, we do it with the least amount of harm. I think that there's a moment right now where we can help pull others who are starting to use terms like white supremacy or reparation or bias. I mean, there's language that has been fire hosed from the mouths of human beings for so long. And we haven't heard it either voluntarily or involuntarily because we were chasing that good ghost, right? We were chasing like the ghost of goodness. Um, and so for me, I'm so eager to be a conduit for folks who don't know who the scholars representing marginalized communities who are so generously willing, raising their hand to educate us. I will forever be in that first row learning from them. I am not an anti-racist, um, gender-based, disability-based, like I'm not a scholar on any of this stuff. I am just a student and I might I might graduate to second at some point in my lifetime. So I think part of the coalition build is to say, I don't know what I don't know. Literally, if you're listening, say that right now. I don't know what I don't know. We're never extended that type of humility. That's not something our school systems have taught us to allow to have. And surely none of our relationships. Um, I don't know what I don't know. I'm going to ask lots of questions about my behavior, going back to that, how might I be causing harm? How can I decrease it? Not extending ourselves the freedom of a cognitive acrobat, which suggests, oh, I recycled today, so I caused less harm, so let me go check out tonight. You can't do that. You still have to keep that bar really high for yourself. Recognizing that as you sometimes post that black square or that black and white photo in ways that might be performative or might not be that helpful, that you lean into the learning of that. And then most importantly, demonstrate humility publicly for all of us. We mm -hmm. don't need that enough. That's the root of cancel culture. And you see Trump starting, ironically, starting to use this concept of cancel culture against the left. I think a coalition build for us is to like strip, look at the blueprint. Like when did you make decisions that were following the rules? Like my wedding, I thought about since I was a flower girl when I was like four, right? Like I knew what I wanted for a wedding and I sort of look back at it now. I'm like, yeah, that was really beautiful. But oh my God, was I played, played by mm -hmm. a full, you know, the system. And I, the irony is that Instagram still thinks I'm getting married because they just like feed me wedding dress photos. And I'd be lying if I said sometimes I don't look at them. But, and I've been married for 10 years, so I'm, I'm not in the business of getting married again. But, but I think the coalition that we have to build is to show up in our relationships to the work that has to be done is already in that room with you or on that walk to work or wherever you're listening to that podcast. Like it's the 
Where am I making excuses for people's behavior in my life? Where am I cutting corners because it's too convenient? You know, where are my elitist, you know, perspectives? I really appreciate that you're ending with this idea of like disrupt and be humble. I feel like that is like the, the perfect, um, um, you know, medicine to offer white folks who are engaging in the broader movement so that they can do less harm and so that they can actually do the right thing over the next couple months. And I'm just super grateful for you and for your vulnerability and for um, your willingness to lean into this conversation and be courageous and take responsibility for your part, Jenna. This book is a gem. Um, and it's really an essential reading, I think, for, for, um, for white folks in how to like catch up and, um, and take responsibility in the way that, that we have to for the well-being of all of us. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. I'm so excited for um, the world to be graced with your words soon. And thank <laughs> you for carrying the torch. And thank you for being a teacher to me. Um, this book didn't happen if you weren't in my life. So thank you. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is for white women to examine what of our privilege and position we are protecting and how to unhook ourselves so that we can show up in solidarity for this election and beyond. And of course, to vote. You can buy Jenna's book, Raising Our Hands, at benbellabooks.com and follow Jenna on Instagram at It's Jenna. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.